uh, let's turn in our Bibles to Romans, uh, so Romans, <laughs> Freudian slip there, uh, Revelation chapter 12, Re- Revelation chapter 12, we're reading verses 1 to 6. Let's hear the word of God. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the, light, the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. If we've learned anything from our study of Revelation thus far, it is, in the words of William Shakespeare, that there are more things in heaven and on earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of, in your philosophy. The bard was saying that human knowledge, great and growing though it is, has its limitations. And that's what we find in this book. It is the premise of this book that the natural world in which we live is inevitably and inextricably bound up with the supernatural and the eternal That is, that earth is bound up with heaven. Uh, The first series of visions began in chapter 4 with a door having been opened in heaven. It wasn't so much something you could identify in terms of time. Rather, it was a signal to a development in divine revelation. That is, in God's self-revelation of himself in history to John. Heaven, you see, is the origin and the source of that Word of God which comes to us from the outside. Uh, Part of the symbolism of worship when we gather here is that at this point in the service, you're not reading a book, you're not engaged in discussion or conversation, you are sitting passively and hearing the Word of God read and preached to you from outside your head. And that's precisely what we find in Scripture. We find that heaven is the origin and the source of the Word of God. It comes to us from the outside, and it has more interiority in terms of us, clarity and concreteness than anything we might encounter here below. It is a heavenly voice. The voice from heaven that came when Jesus was standing in the waters of baptism, 
announced that he was the Messiah, the Christ. This voice from heaven, this word of God, is never simply some idealized concept, but it is the description of and the declaration of both its reality and all ultimate reality. The message at the baptism of Jesus was that this man, Christ Jesus, is the Son of God. And that as the dove descends upon him, the Holy Spirit rests upon him, that there is a Father who speaks, a Son who is anointed as Messiah, and a Holy Spirit who comes upon him and equips him for the work. And all of that leads us then to Revelation chapter 12. It ushers us into the second part of the book of Revelation. And here we hear of a great wonder in heaven. That word wonder is the Greek word sign. It's the word that's used throughout John's gospel. Instead of uh, the word miracles, John uses the word sign to encourage us to think that the miracle is not simply the supernatural action that takes place, but the significance of the action. What is What is God communicating to us through this action of Jesus, this power and miracle that Jesus is performing? Those were concrete realities performed in public, witnessed by many, but which pointed beyond themselves to a far greater reality. In the chapter that, uh, that follow, the chapters that follow this chapter, there are going to be seven significant signs following the seven seals that were unlocked and the seven trumpets that were blown in the flow of Revelation. Now we have seven significant signs. And they're earthly signs but they represent heavenly realities. The miracles, for example, under Moses when he was in Egypt demonstrated the presence, the power, and the purpose of God in heaven on earth. Heaven is a created place. God created heaven not for himself as a place to live because God is God is not, there is no place where God is not. But God created heaven for our sakes, where we might know him, meet him, and one day see him. Created space. And it's from heaven that he is present to and in the world, our reality. From heaven, he is present. And especially from heaven, he is present to and in his people, his community, his church. We're reminded of this when we pray, our Father in heaven. Jesus reminds us as he assures us that God hears our prayers, that uh, your prayers will be answered, Jesus says, by my Father, which is in heaven. The the psalmist tells us in Psalm 118, the Lord has prepared his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. 
Up to this point, we've been seeing there, is many, there are many references to Psalm 2 in the book of Revelation, and this is how the sovereignty of God is described. He that sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. He's talking about the nations who are organized in their antichrist manner to destroy the Lord's anointed. He will mock the raging of the nations, their futile, uh, futile imaginations, the pretensions of earthly leaders and earthly rulers and their councils. And this is not the amused laughter that we have when we see somebody do something stupid. This is the sovereign stability of God versus the anxious attempts of creatures to dethrone him. Back to the text. What we have in this text is not mythology, but allegory. Rome, the Rome of John's day was full of myths. Leto and Apollo, the goddess Roma, the great mother Sybil. We think of uh, Hydra of the Hercules legend and so on. All of these great figures are to be found in mythology. But this language, the language of Revelation 12, is not drawn from any of those sources. It is drawn from Scripture, which is authored by the Holy Spirit. And the allegory, for allegory it is, focuses on three characters. We're going to look at this this morning. The mother, the monster, and the man-child. First of all, the mother. And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. It's a picture of wonder, a picture of loveliness, a picture of splendor. In the Bible, a woman is beautiful. The way this woman is dressed is spectacular in the best sense of the word. And this is the first of three female figures that will occupy space in the rest of the book of Revelation. The first and the third are linked. The middle is not, and you'll see why. There's this woman here in chapter 12. There is the harlot in chapter 17 who is the antithesis of this woman. And then at the end of the book, there is the bride of the Lamb that tells us the identity of this woman. The bride is her alter ego. This woman, we're told, is crowned with stars and is the one from whom, from whose womb, Messiah will come. So who is she? Who is she? Well, as you read the text, the proximity of the dragon, which is a serpent, may be a clue. We're told later, of course, that this serpent is the devil. And so our first thought might be, 
to go back in the Bible, back to Genesis chapter 3, to Eve and the serpent. And you wouldn't be wrong to do that. Eve is the mother of all living. She is our mother, literally. All of us are descended from Eve. She is also the first believer in the Bible, the first one to believe the promises of the Messiah, who would be descended from her and would crush the serpent under his feet. Eve, in Scripture, represents the believing people of God, the church, which existed from earliest days. Because of the fall, God set enmity between the serpent and the woman, between the serpent's seed and the woman's seed. That's the story of the Bible. And the story of Eve is actualized in each of those mothers whose childbearing lay in the line of descent leading towards Christ. You think of Rachel, for example. Rachel, who bore her children with great difficulty in the birth of them. Her first child was her little miracle child. Her second child was the death of her. Her first child is Joseph. And Joseph has a dream. Behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars were looking down, bowing down to me, the twelfth star. And then, of course, at the other end of the spectrum, there is Mary. Mary, who is one of those believing people in the book of Luke, for example, Luke paints a picture in those opening chapters of the spiritual life of Israel down to single figures almost, single digits. He, he describes within all of Israel just these few people in Jerusalem who were waiting for the consolation of Israel, who were waiting for the coming of the Messiah. He names some of these people like Simeon and Anna. There was Zechariah and Elizabeth, and there is this woman, Mary. They represent the remnant of believers within, within Israel of that day. And Mary is the one who gives birth to Jesus. Her yes to God... Mary's yes to God was an act of faith and love for God. Let it be to me according to your word. And her yes to God, she was enabled to say that by God's grace. She admits to that herself. But her yes to God was deliberate and believing. Now, this woman here in the text, this woman is clothed with the sun. 
And she embraces all of those women of faith that I've ta- talked about, spoken about, those women of faith who are the keys that unlock a lot of the Old Testament and find their culmination in Mary in the New Testament. The promise of the Messiah was tied to that long line, a virgin will conceive and bring forth a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Eve, in all the generations of her race, has been travailing as if in childbirth to bring forth the Christ and the age to come. The woman clothed with the sun represents not only these women, she represents the church in all her generations. Her 12 stars represent the 12 tribes of Israel. They represent the 12 apostles of the Lamb. That is, they represent the community, the believing community of God's people down through history. She is the wife of Jehovah. She is the bride of Christ. She is the true Zion. She is the faithful Jerusalem. As Isaiah puts it, like a woman with child who writhes and cries out in her pangs when she is near her time, so were we, says Isaiah, representing the believing community. So were we because of you, O Lord. Because of you, O Lord. It's as if all the trials and troubles and tribulations, all the pains of the people of God throughout the Old Testament are all part of this longing, this birthing that is coming of the Messiah. They're all leading up to this great birth, this great appearance, because of you, O Lord. And Paul gives us the solution. In Galatians, he says, Jerusalem that is above, who is our mother. That's our home. That's where we belong. Whether you're thinking of Israel or you're thinking of the church, you're thinking of Jerusalem. You're thinking of Zion. You're thinking of the bride of Christ, who is the wife of Jehovah. You're thinking of she to whom we owe our lives. Spiritually. So we find that if, whether we're thinking of Israel, the woman that brings us forth the Messiah, or we're thinking of the church that gives birth to the Messiah's siblings, our brothers and sisters, listen to what it says in chapter 12, verse 17. The rest of her offspring, those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus... Or as the Apostle Paul puts it, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. The woman represents Israel and the church. Jerusalem, Zion, Eve, Mary, Rachel, And her dress echoes the description of the bride of the Lord in the Song of Solomon. There are these wonderful words spoken about the church. Who is this that goes forth like the dawn, beautiful as the moon, bright as the sun, terrible as an army with banners? This woman's garment of light 
Do you notice she's clothed with it? She is clothed with light. This woman's garment of light is a gift to her. It's a gift from him who, uh, whose face, we're told, in Revelation chapter 1, is like the sun shining in full strength. He is the source of the light. He is the radiant light. She reflects that light. The church reflects that light. On Reformation Sunday, it's good to be reminded of this. Heinrich Bullinger, one of the reformers, puts it like this. This woman is clothed with the sun because Scripture called Christ the Son of Righteousness and the Light of Life. St. Paul commandeth the church to put on Christ. He therefore is the light, the life, the righteousness of the church. Christ is the ornament and beauty of the church. Through him it shineth in the world. St. Augustine said this, If God is our Father, the church is our mother. John Calvin agreed with him. Calvin wrote this, There is no other way to enter into life unless this mother, the church, conceives us in her womb, gives us birth, and nourishes us at her breast. Away from her bosom, one cannot hope for any forgiveness of sins or any salvation. The church brings us to birth. The church sustains us in our life. And that the church is a wonder that appears in heaven is a reminder of the church's heavenly origin, heavenly identity, and heavenly destiny. The church's life on earth is a reflection of that much brighter heavenly existence. When we gather for worship, as we observe the liturgy, as we hear the word preached, we're we're reminded of this. In chapters 2 and 3 of this book, we were reminded as Jesus sends letters to real live churches in his day, as Jesus sends letters to those churches addressed to the angel of the church, that is, to the heavenly being responsible for those individual local churches, each having its own angel responsible for it. In other words, the church is a mystical body. It is a mystical unity. Heaven and earth brought together as we gather in worship. Heaven and earth coalesce together as we sing God's praise as we confess God's name, as we hear God's word, as we partake of God's sacrament. The church is a spiritual community. We're not not an organization or an association of like-minded people who are bound together by mundane purposes of race or nationality or shared interests or shared hobbies, or any of those things. We're as different as, as, as you can imagine, the people who are in this room. So what, what unites us? 
We are united in Christ. The church is an honored member of that great hierarchy of God's subjects. We are earthly ambassadors of the divine king. The woman, the mother, is principally the mother of us all, the church of God. Then secondly, the monster. You you notice there's another sign. Another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems or crowns. The primary purpose of this character in the story is the dragon's pursuit of the woman and its attempt to kill her offspring, the child and the other children. We're told the identity later in this chapter, who this dragon is. But uh, there's enough in this part we've read today to help us to grasp its identity. John calls this another sign. So we're to look for symbolism. The dragon is a serpent. So Genesis 3 comes to mind. It was the dragon, the serpent, who led Lee Eve to be deceived and who led Adam into sin. The dragon is red, denoting its murderous work. Jesus said, your father, the devil, was a murderer from the beginning. Likewise, Cain, who slew his brother, Cain was of the evil one because he murdered his brother. The ten horns, the horn, you know, is the point the charging animal gets you. The horn bears the concentrated power of the charging animal and was a symbol of power and energy. These ten horns are symbolic of the plenitude of the devil's powers. The seven heads with seven crowns denote sovereignty. He is seven-headed because the word seven, of course, is the perfect word, the perfect number, the complete number. He is the perfection of evil. He is evil Incarnate, He is evil in its completeness and comprehensiveness. Evil to the maximum degree. And one thing we can say about evil is that evil is always pluriform. As the demons say, my name is Legion, for we are many. Now all the language in the apocalypse is imaginative, metaphorical, with biblical overtones and allusions. Because human language, you know, is inadequate for us to describe God. And human language is inadequate for us to describe evil. God is too real. God is too real for our minds to grasp. Whereas the devil is an ontological negative. There is nothing positive you can say about the devil. He is an ontological negative. He kind of hovers, somebody has put it, he hovers at the borders of unreality while causing destruction in the world. He is the prince of the power of the air, the spirit at work in the disobedient. 
Now, we must never underestimate the colossal size and vast strength of the devil. When heaven cannot contain him, we read, he lashes out his tail, and his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. Jude tells us these were the angels that did not keep their own position, but left their proper dwelling, siding with Satan, a third of the angelic host. Later in the chapter, we're told, his angels were thrown down with him. These fallen angels form the spiritual army that pursues the devilish oppression of the earth. The word for the dragon is an Old Testament word used of evil, the evil sea monster that symbolized all the evil kingdoms that oppressed God's people, Behemoth and Leviathan, the two, the two monsters that God will destroy at the end of time. Isaiah 27 talks about that day. In that day, the Lord, with his hard, great, strong sword, will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. Satan. And what is on the monster's mind? Look at verse 4. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to bear, work, to bear a child, that he might devour her child when she brought it forth. Just as Moses was threatened at birth by Pharaoh, and as Jesus himself was threatened at birth by Herod, there is a repeat of the ancient enmity between the serpent and the woman between the serpent's seed and the woman's seed. That's the big picture. That is the Bible's big picture. It's always in the background of everything, Scripture says. So the appearance of the woman, the bride, the Zion, the church, has called forth countermeasures from Satan. I think we need to remind ourselves constantly of the essential unity of God's people, in every age and across time. As Israel, she brings forth the Messiah. As the church, she gives birth to Messiah's brothers and sisters. The church is our mother. Whether it be Israel as the progenitor of the Messiah or the church as the mother of believers. And so Satan has a vested interest in destroying the offspring. Uh, this is how we should understand as we read the Old Testament. This is what's going on in the Old Testament. This is what, what interprets the, the fortunes of Israel, up and down, up and down, rebellion and fair faithfulness and rebellion and disaster and so on. It is this conflict that explains that in the Old Covenant. And it's this conflict that explains the history of the church throughout our history the last 2,000 years. As the Lord himself says through Isaiah, Babylon has devoured me. He has crushed me. He has made me an empty vessel. He has swallowed me like a monster. He has filled his belly with my delicacies. He has rinsed me out. Satan and his work. 
So on the one hand, you have humanity, fallen, but struggling to the birth of the Messiah. And on the other hand, you have the hostile powers of evil, watching, waiting for any opportunity to spoil that hope. That's the Old Testament. So the Spirit has all of these conflicts in view as he prepares us for this business. And he reminds us that Satan is still a problem to us. He is still in the business of seeking to snatch away the children from this mother. Our covenant children, they're the target of Satan. The interested seeker, you may be one here this morning. You're a target of Satan. Well, we have the mother, we have the monster, and then lastly, we have the man-child. Here's what it says. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule the nations with a rod of iron. The choice of words calls to mind Pharaoh with his order to drown all the male Israelite babies. They also refer to God's fuller explanation of the virginal conception In Isaiah 7, the virgin shall conceive. Because in Isaiah 66, we read these words, Before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came upon her, she was delivered of a son. Who has heard of such a thing? Shall a land be born in one day? Shall a nation be brought forth in one moment? It's talking about the church. As Christ is born, the head So the church is born, his body on earth. And you can't separate the head from the body. This man-child is primarily the son of Mary, who is the son of God, and who has already identified himself in this book, Revelation, in chapter 2, verse 26, as the one who has power to rule the nations with a rod of iron and to give that power to his siblings. The language comes, of course, once again from Psalm 2. He is the Messiah mentioned in that psalm who has assumed human nature and therefore because human, he put himself in danger. He made himself vulnerable as a little baby thing. But he is also the Son of God. That's made clear in Psalm 2. He's the eternal Son of God. Today, eternally, in God's today, I have begotten you. It's made clear in the reference to ruling the nations with a rod of iron. Those words are said of the eternally only begotten Son who becomes Messiah, and as Messiah, the human Messiah, wins a great victory over evil. Just as the devil is waiting for the birth of this child, just as the child is born and his jaws snap to devour the child. So the devil bites his own tongue instead. Psalm 2 prophesies, prophesies that God's Son, acting as God's Messiah, will defeat all worldly enemies and be enthroned as ruler over all the earth. Now, the child is called the male child. 
the male son rather, the male son, to show that he is the initial fulfillment of the psalm. And that's decisive in growing the church because God has subsequent sons. Some are male sons and some are female sons. We share the same birth from the same mother only because we we have gender, which God doesn't have. We come forth as his adopted sons, therefore joint heirs and joint rulers with Christ in his kingdom. The man-child escapes the dragon's fangs. He failed to destroy the woman's son. His failure was manifested by the ascension. We're told the child is caught up to God and to his throne. There you have it. To God and to his throne. This man-child is God. To go to ascend to God's throne, which is also his throne, tells you that this child is God as well as man, divine as well as human. And the same verb, to be caught up, is used to describe the saints being caught up to meet Christ when Christ returns. And for those of you who are in the know, this is the only mention of a rapture in the entire book of Revelation. And it's the rapture of this child, this son. When he comes again, made like him, like him, we will rise. And we're told the woman, the mother, the church, flees to the wilderness, just as Israel did when it left Egypt. And just as Israel found there in the desert, she was protected. She was fed manna from heaven. She was guided by the cloud and the fire. She was nourished throughout the whole course of the church age. We've seen these figures before, that 1,260 days is also described as 42 months and three and a half years. The three and a half years of Jesus' entire ministry are used as a kind of model or code for the entirety of the church age, which is on mission, as Jesus was, and following in Jesus' steps. And suffering as Jesus did before being caught up together with Jesus into the glory. The Lord ascended and is now seated in his sacred humanity at the right hand of the Father. I'm going to finish with an illustration which you can't see but which I have on my phone. Uh, from an original crayon and pencil drawing by Sister Grace Remington. It's a picture of two women, of Eve and of Mary, heavily pregnant Mary. Eve has in her right hand the apple, a reminder of the fall. She has a serpent around her left leg and on the ground 
Mary has taken her left hand and placed it on her stomach, on her belly, and with her right hand is holding Eve's head. And the title is Mary Comforts Eve. And right in that little picture, you have the entire story of the Bible represented in those two women. The fall and redemption. Sin and salvation. Hope and fulfillment. Love and the beloved. I wonder if this morning you know anything about that salvation which comes to us as a free gift. It's not tit for tat. You have to have empty hands to receive it. It's not, I'll give you this if you give me that. It's empty hands to be received. The gift of life that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why don't you join this wonderful family? The family of God. The siblings of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for this wonderful allegory of the whole course of the history of the church from the origins of time right back to the beginning of time until this day. We thank you for those who have gone before us, who have hoped and trusted and waited and prayed, like Eve and Rachel and Mary, the whole host of people, those who have got taken the gospel out into the world, those who brought the gospel to North America, those who brought the gospel to China and to Africa and South America, those who have gone from here to take the gospel around the world. Lord, we pray that that gospel would triumph and that you would subdue Satan and all his works. We pray it in Jesus' strong name. Amen.